1 John chapter 4, today we'll be considering verses 1 to 6. We have spent a good part of our time in 1 John taking tests. Three kinds of tests, repeated multiple times each. Does anybody remember what those tests are? And while you're thinking about it, you see what I'm doing here? This is a test on the tests. Okay, there's moral test. Okay? The same. Faith and love. Good. It's pretty important, I would say, that we know what those tests are. Because the Bible is always calling upon us, exhorting us to take those tests. It says very clearly, examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. And that's a, that's a present tense imperative upon us. That's a command for all of the people of God. It, it doesn't say, you know, once you reach a certain level of spiritual maturity, you don't have to examine yourself anymore. You know, it doesn't say, well, everybody needs to take this test except for so-and-so because we all know that he has finally arrived. No, we all need to, on a regular basis, be testing and examining ourselves for those three things. And that's why I encourage you to memorize what they are so that you can, throughout your life, examine your heart and your life by the Word of God to see that you meet the standard of the Scriptures. And so we have those three tests. Number one is the doctrinal test, examining our faith in God's Son. The second test is the moral test, examining our obedience of God's commandments. And the third test is the relational test, examining our love for God's people. And if we take the test and find evidence for each of those three things, faith, obedience, and love, we have evidence that we truly are of God. But if we take those tests and the search comes empty, comes up empty, that's evidence that we don't belong to God, that we're not of Him. And I really appreciate how John makes such a potentially hazardous, confusing issue so black and white simple for us. And that's, that's something to be thankful for. And so I need, I think we need to take advantage of that by step one, just remembering what the tests are. So faith, obedience, and love. Something I didn't mention last week, which is pretty important, but I didn't because of time. When do I ever pay attention to time, right? You just don't know. Sometimes I do. Well, in in verse 23, the thing I didn't mention last week is that all three tests converge in that one verse. Look back to it. Chapter 3, verse 23. It said... And this is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, there's the faith test, and love one another, there is the love test, just as He commanded us, there is the obedience test. And according to, let's back up more, according to the end of verse 22, that is what pleases God. These three things, present and working in our lives, please God. 
And one thing that we paid very close attention to last week is that these three things are Christ-centered. If you want to live a life pleasing to God, and um, I, I hope that it is your agenda in life to live pleasing to God, because that's the whole reason for your existence. That's why you are on this planet, to please God. These three things are profoundly Christ-centered. If you want to please God, you must honor His Son. There is no other life that pleases God the Father but the life that is centered on His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So all of this believing, all of this obeying, and all of this loving are centered on Jesus. Because, again, if you look at verse 23, it's believing in the name of His Son, and the command that we must obey is from Jesus. He is the one who said, Love one another as I have loved you. In light of the Christ-centeredness of the Father. You can count on the fact that not any faith will do. Not just any faith in any Jesus will do. It must be a right faith in the right Jesus that pleases the Father. It must be a true confession of faith in the true Jesus as he is revealed in his apostles' writings contained in the New Testament. A true confession of faith in the true Jesus that is revealed to us by his apostles. It must be a right faith. You know, it, it's possible to be a theological nitpicker, to be all about theologically splitting hairs. But I don't think you can do that when you're talking about God's Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. About who He is and what He has done. About His person, His nature, and His work. We must be right. I, I, I want to, I want you to understand the Lord has this is not what I want you to understand. I'll explain that in a moment. But just recently, God has powerfully impacted upon my heart His commitment to His Son in, in such a way that it is, it is blowing up, enlarging my, my vision of what the Trinity means the father's commitment to the son and the son's to the father and for some reason that i can't explain to you this uh, though i've known this the the impact of it is really deepening into my heart and i don't know that i can convey it i i know that if you will have it impacted upon your heart also it must be the holy spirit that does it because i I have, a, I have this feeling that this is a life-transforming thing and it will affect my vision of the Christian life and my relationship with God for the rest of my life. So I, there's something I want you to see. Uh, give you a, um, a, a sampling of what God has been pressing home upon me. I want you to understand the Father's love for the Son. The one gospel that 
talks about the Father's love for the Son more than any other gospel is the Gospel of John. Probably not surprising to you. And the way that very often this is framed in the Gospel of John is that Jesus is constantly talking about what the Father has given to him. How does the Father love me? This is what he has given to me. Okay, so he says that the Father has given the Son life in himself. He says that the Father has given to him, the Son, the Spirit without measure. He has given to the Son all judgment. He has given him authority over all flesh. And he has given all things into his hand. And I'm not paraphrasing, those are direct quotes from Jesus. He doesn't talk like that in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I mean, they didn't cover that perspective about of how Jesus talked about his relationship with God. That's only in John. He says, this is how the Father loves me. Consider what he has given to me. And then one of the things he keeps on talking about the Father having given him is a people. In John 6, he says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. In John 10, he says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And then in chapter 17, he talks about this gift of a people from the Father. Six, why am I holding up three? talks about it six times in his prayer to the Father. I'll give you a couple of examples. Verse 6, he says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Verse 9, John 17, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. So the Father loves the Son with a passionate love. It is a divine love. And so he has given all things into his hand. He has given him life in himself. He has given him authority over all flesh. He has given him the spirit without measure. And he has given to him a people. And all of this is evidence of the father's love for his son. And all of that leads me to this. For God so loved the world that he gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. The Father loves the Son and therefore gives Him all of these things, one after another. Incredible gifts divine for all of eternity. And the Father so loves the world that He gave to us His only Son. Tell me that that is not the most remarkable, astonishing thing that you have ever heard in your life. 
John 3.16. Now, if the Father honors the Son in that way, giving Him all of these things, including a people, and He loves the world in such a way that He gives us His Son, and we receive Him by faith. It is those who believe who will never perish but have everlasting life. Do you think that the right faith matters? If the Father is determined to honor His Son and He is pleased by the faith of His people, don't you think that those people must have the right faith and it must be in the right Jesus? Let's go to our passage. 1 John 3, 24. The, the second sentence in that verse. And by this we know that He, God, abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. But, that word is there, read between the lines. But, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. It must be the right faith in the right Jesus. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. We are coming back to this doctrinal test, examining for faith. Faith in God's Son. And rather than being the ones who are so much taking the test, we'll do a little bit of taking the test ourselves today. And that's what we've been doing all through the letter. We've been taking the test. Now John commands us to administer the test. We must first, he says in verses 1 to 3, administer the test of faith to those who teach. And then in verses 5 and 6, he encourages us to test for the right faith in those who are taught. First in those who teach, then those who are taught. All of which, at 12 minutes to 12, has been introduction. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. Help us, Father, to get it. I know that in our day and age where contending for the faith, it's not a popular thing. It seems like quibbling. It seems about like it's about splitting hairs. But Father, we know that if we are to please You, we must have the right faith in the right Jesus. And I, You call us to contend for the faith. So help us to contend with boldness and with courage and with power. And to do so with humility and compassion and gentleness and love. 
Help us, I pray. In Jesus' name, please give to us your Holy Spirit. We want to exalt your Son. So help us, we ask. In his name, amen. We know that God abides in us. By the Spirit, it says in the end of verse 24 of chapter 3, by the Spirit whom He has given us. But we are not to believe every spirit. We are not to assume that every teaching that comes our way is from God. Because as John says in the second part of verse 3, the spirit of the Antichrist that we have heard is coming and he, some 1900 plus years later, is still to come. His spirit is present and rampant in this world already. All of these false prophets and antichrists, and believe me, there are many more false prophets and antichrists in our day than in John's day. Satan has had 2,000 years to nibble away and chip away at the doctrine, the teaching of the person, and the nature and the work of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so there are many different brands and many different forms of this false teaching, but it's all the spirit of the Antichrist. So we must not assume that any teaching about Jesus from anybody in a suit is actually honoring and pleasing to God and is the truth. We need, he says in verse 1, to test for the faith. Test the spirits. So he says, by this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. The doctrine that God has given to us to hold fast until death is the doctrine concerning His Son, who He is and what He did, the person and the nature and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who is this person, Jesus, who came out of Nazareth in Galilee claiming to be the Son of God? He is the one who is from the beginning. He was with God and He is Himself eternal God. The one who is from everlasting to everlasting. The Bible says, as we read a little while ago in Colossians chapter 1, that He is the one who created all things. And He holds all things together. Everything was created by Him and everything was created for Him. He is the eternal second person of the triune God. And He became a man. It says He came in the flesh. And that wording, come in the flesh, is in what we call the perfect tense. It means it's talking about a past action with continuing results. You know what that means is that Jesus did not just take on humanity for a little while, some 30 plus years, and then go back to being purely only God. He is now forevermore one person with two natures, 100% God and 100% man in one individual who is God the Son, Son of God and Son of Man. And this doctrine concerning his person, his nature, and his work, on this doctrine, many, many false teachings will be exposed. For example, the cults of the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses and denominations like the Oneness Pentecostals will all compromise and fall short 
on who Jesus is eternally. They will fall short and somehow deny that he is the second person of the Trinity, fully God and fully man forevermore. The Bible says if we're going to please God, we need to have the right faith in the right Jesus. If you will please God truly, you must believe in his son only. Now, if you have a a working radar, theologically speaking, and you're able to detect false teaching out there, which you might not be very confident in, but I, I bet you that you are better at detecting false teaching than you might think. But uh, I, I would say that if you have a pretty good working radar, doctrinally speaking, then you know that there are false teachers out there who confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. And that's true. Certainly there are. So we need to unpack this statement a little bit more. What does it mean to confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh? Because, you know, even the demons in Jesus' day basically confessed that he had come in the flesh. There were a few occasions where he encountered demons face to face and they said, we know who you are, the Holy One of God. And he would basically tell them to shut up. But did that confession mean that they had suddenly been transferred into his kingdom and they were giving allegiance to his son, to the son? Uh, Obviously not. So confessing means to more than acknowledge him Confessing him means to trust him. And I will add to that, not only to trust that he came, but to trust in the why of his coming. That he came and why he came in the flesh. Why did Jesus come? Jesus came to die. He came to die so that through his death we might be saved to God, right? We know that, we believe that with full conviction on all of our hearts. But many false prophets in the world who will confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh will have the salvation part and what we are saved to all wrong. They are basically preaching, not in so many words, but read between the lines because it's quite plain. They believe, they are teaching that Jesus Christ came to save us to the world. To the world. What does John condemn? What kind of love does he condemn in chapter 2? He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And so what are the things that are in the world? He said, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life. Let's be plain. Who are we talking about? We're talking about the prosperity preachers. We're talking about TBN. Prosperity preachers are antichrists. They are false prophets. They do not belong to God. Because their message, while they say that Jesus Christ came in the flesh, they have why he came in the flesh all wrong. They basically say, as they promise health and wealth and the American dream fulfilled and personal advancement and self-fulfillment and all of that stuff, they're basically saying that God came in the flesh to save us 
to the world. In 1 John 2, John urged us to love our brothers. And that is evidence that we belong to the light. But he told us to not love indiscriminately. He said, love your brother, love Love your Christian brother. Love those who are in the household of faith. And we know that we are to love all people. We are to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. So love everyone. But don't love everything. Love anyone, but don't love anything. We are not to love the things of the world. And that is really the message of the whole prosperity theology. The whole name it and claim it movement. I read one author this past week who called it Blab It and Grab It. It's about being saved to the world so that we can gain the world. What does it matter if a man gains the world and loses his soul? They are false teachers. So then, John is telling us, not only must we not just love anything, He goes on to talking about faith. And he says, we are not to hold back faith in God's Son. But while you believe in God's Son, don't believe just anything. Don't believe just anyone. So love anyone, but don't believe anyone. So we are not to love indiscriminately, and we're not to believe indiscriminately. But if you take those two things, tests, and you apply them to the false teachers, particularly the prosperity preachers, they fail both of those tests. Because they both love indiscriminately and they believe indiscriminately. The most effective false prophets operating in the world today do both of those things, love and believe indiscriminately, and therein lies their power to deceive. You see, one of the things about false prophets and antichrists is This is where it gets difficult. They don't come frothing out the mouth and demanding devil worship. It's it's not their their mode of operation. They operate very subtly. They love indiscriminately. They profess love for God, but they love the world. And they love the things of the world. And they believe indiscriminately. They are tolerant in the spirit of the age. And so they work their message to fit whatever crowd they're up against. If they're before a conservative crowd, a a crowd that's conservative of faith, they will hold doctrine with a closed hand and they will say, these are the precious truths. And and they'll, they'll talk about error even. But if they're before a liberal crowd, crowd liberal of faith, they'll hold truth with an open hand. And they'll compromise their message. They'll, they'll, they'll mold their message to fit whatever crowd they're up against. And that's why you will see certain prosperity preachers, you know, even tested on uh, CNN. And we've seen it before with uh, when Larry King was doing his program for so many years. He would bring in prosperity preachers and he would ask them about certain controversies in society. Uh, he, he will bring up big religious questions like, does everybody get saved or are there certain people, if they don't believe in Jesus, will they go to hell? And they 
will compromise the message. Always. Before one crowd, they'll try to walk straight. Before the other crowd, broad is the way that leads to Jesus. And by the way, one little particular in this, I would just encourage you, be careful who you quote on social media because it might be a great quote, but from a false prophet. In verse 4, we have this encouragement. He says, little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. We are little children in ourselves weak, but we are God's little children and in him strong. And in him, he says, we have already conquered. We have overcome them. God's commandment is that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, right? We know that. That's chapter 3, verse 23. God's spirit has been sent by God and he is present in the world and present in our, in our hearts to ensure that faith, that right faith in the right one happens. He is here to make that faith happen. And so when you heard, if you are a believer today, if you are a child of God, when you heard at one time the good news of Jesus Christ, the spirit came to you and he opened your eyes so that you would see the glory and the beauty and the sufficiency of Jesus to save for the first time. He made you alive to Christ so that you would repent of your sins, turn your back on all the world has to offer, all of its sin and all of its idolatries, and embrace Jesus Christ as your Savior and as your treasure by faith. The Holy Spirit did that. And now the Spirit of God, who within you exalts the Son of God, has for you overcome all the liars and all their lies about Jesus. In him, by the one who dwells in you forever, the false teachers, the false prophets, and the Antichrist have been overcome. And I'll tell you why this is so such good news. Because it's pretty intimidating these days. All the heretics out there, all the blasphemy, that is conveyed as truth. It can be pretty intimidating. You need to know what you believe and why you believe it. And you might think, uh, it's not too often that I encounter a false prophet or it's not every day that I come across some heresy in a, uh, in a personal way. So I think I've got by pretty good to this point and... I think I'll be pretty good until the end. But what if somebody came in here saying that Jesus had a sin nature? How would you refute it? It's not so far-fetched, is it? What would you do if someone that you thought was in the faith for so long, someone close to you, turned on Jesus and started to rip up the Bible and throw out all these criticisms. How are you going to answer? You need to know what you believe and why you believe it, not only for your own sake, but for theirs as well. It's about loving the God who loves the Son and loving souls. 
It's about praising Him and ministering to people. But it's good news that all of those lies have been overcome in your life. The Spirit of God in you has overcome them already. Now the test of this is simply, what do you think of Jesus? Do you, are the lies overcome in your life? Well, tell me what you think of Jesus. Do you have any other faith greater than Him or any other faith beside Him? Do you have another hope beside Jesus? Is there something besides who He is and what He has done that you're leaning upon for salvation? Do you have another love greater than Jesus? Tell me what you think of Jesus. We all need to answer that question. For those who are trusting in Jesus Christ alone and who love Him first, by the work of the Spirit of God in their lives, they've been transformed to love Him first. All of the lies and all of the liars concerning Jesus have been overcome. So for the first three verses here, we've been looking at testing for the faith in those who teach. The second test for the faith in verses 5 to 6 is administered to those who are taught, those who are those who hear. Let's look at verses 5 and 6 again. He says, They, that is the false prophets, are from the world. Therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We, on the other hand, are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to, to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Now, you don't get any more simple than that. I mean, John is talking about a very profound and potentially confusing matter here as he talks about testing for the faith. But he keeps it cut and dry, black and white, very simple. So I want to try to keep it as simple in our interpretation as John does in his proclamation. We all believe what we want to believe. And what we believe reveals who we are from, where we are from, and whose we are. And so the basic question is, who are you listening to? Who do you listen to? The world listens to the false prophets because the false prophets are from the world and giving a worldly message. So the world is just simply buys into its own message. They believe what they want to believe, and it reveals where they're from and whose they are. So the world listens to the world's message, but we listen to God's message because we believe also what we want to believe, and it reveals where we are from and whose we are. That's what John says. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. But by this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So who do we listen to? Who do you listen to? The we and the us in that passage says we are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. The we and the us is the apostles. One of the signs that you know God is that you submit to the Christ-centered apostolic teaching message of the New Testament. Whoever is from God submits their faith to the Son's apostles. Again, there's the whole relationship of the Trinity at work. Whoever knows God 
listens to his son's apostles. That's the message we believe. That's the message that we trust in and claim as our own. And it reveals where we are from, that we are truly from God. It reveals who we, whose we are, that we are his. I want you to hear the words of Jesus on this matter. He said, the sheep follow the shepherd, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This is John 10. Then Jesus goes on to say, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Then he says this, And I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. Who belongs to Jesus truly? It is those who listen to God's message delivered through his son's apostles, preserved for us in the writings of the New Testament. This word is, is God-breathed. You believe the message that you want to believe. And it's a sign of where you are from and whose you are. So who are you listening to? In the voice of Jesus in the New Testament, do you hear the voice of your Lord? Are you captivated by what He says? Is your attention and your faith gripped by the word of Jesus, by His claim? When he says, I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, I am the good shepherd, and I am the door, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life, I am the resurrection and the life, I am the true vine. When you hear those words, does that sound to you like the voice of, there's my Lord, that's my Savior, that's the one that I'm staking everything upon. Who are you listening to? Don't be surprised by the skepticism and the constant barrage of criticism from the world. 2,000 years on from the time this was written, don't you think that Satan would be really good at his craft now? That he would be have the time to perfect all of his deceits and his schemes and his traps, the message that the world is constantly pulsing with, putting out? Of course Don't be surprised by the criticisms. But ask yourself, always, who am I listening to? Where am I hearing the voice of my salvation? And please, church family, don't be captive to the spirit of this age. The spirit of this age is tolerance. But it's a new kind of tolerance. It used to be we could agree to disagree. I can say that this is the truth and what you believe is not the truth. And we could get along because you were saying the same thing. But that's not it anymore. That's gone. The spirit of this age is that we just agree, period. And we affirm. And we say, my truth is my truth. What you've got is your truth. And mine isn't any better 
than yours. That's the spirit of this age. And when we are captive to it, when we swallow it, we are swallowing Satan's poison. We're swallowing his bait. And if we go with that, it doesn't save anybody. How could the one God say that his son is the only way in one word and say that there is another option, another path, many of them, in fact, that are just as legitimate. It's not the truth. It's illogical. It is logically inconsistent. It cannot be. I mean, it's trying, it's like trying to fit the whole square peg into the round hole thing. You can't do it. So for the love of the Father, to please the Father who loves the Son. Let us honor the Son with the right faith, testing for the faith and contending for the faith in love for His glory and for the good of those who need to hear this message. Let me tell you a quick story. This comes from uh, Clint Archer. Selva Silver Fox Carmichael is Britain's most notorious serial fraudster. In his last scam, last as in not just the latest, but this was his last, he approached two former reality TV contestants and he offered them a role in a new series. They signed on and permitted a TV crew to follow them around for 18 hours a day, filming, and these are his words, and I like them. He says, filming the type of banal, unscripted, melodramatic routine that attracts viewers like gawkers to a car wreck. Carmichael then used that footage to bait investors who fronted the cash for the production of the show. Later, he would put on a saddest face when informing the actors that the network went back in the deal and there was no money to pay them. As per the contract, it had to be returned to the investors. His next stop, of course, was an investor meeting where he apologized for not being able to return their money due to contractual obligations to pay the actors. After everyone fussed and fumed, he slunk out with the entire investment in his bank account. But the would-be actress sued, and her lawyer, Amir Salim, recognized Carmichael's work to be telltale traces of a scam artist. Salim successfully sued Carmichael for the amount owed, plus damages, and in the process, tore off his mask, exposing him as the silver fox. Carmichael was arrested on criminal charges. But here's the rub. Carmichael, too, recognized in Salim's methods traces of the craft. He tipped off his own lawyers, who dug a little deeper into the legal credentials credentials of Amir Salim, who had defeated them in open court, and they were astonished to learn that not only was the law practice Salim worked a fake, but his law degrees had been forged, too. Amir Salim, too, was a serial fraudster. The case in which Salim was unmasked as a fraud was the case he brought against a fellow conman. So the two rival conmen were the undoing of each other. I don't think that too many people have a problem with exposing frauds like that. After all, to look out for your neighbor's hard-earned money is a neighborly thing to do. It's the right thing to do. But what about us? 
What's at stake with that kind of fraud? Somebody's hard-earned money. That's not what we're talking about here. We're not talking about anything temporal. What is at stake with the spiritual con men and con women who are operating all over the world? Eternal life is at stake. Will we not test for the faith? Know what you believe and why you believe it and test for the faith. And as we are commanded in the book of Jude, contend for the faith delivered once for all to the saints. Because eternity is at stake for those who will buy into the frauds and the message of the conmen the message of the Antichrist and the false teachers. For the love of God who loves the Son and for the love of souls, we need to test for the faith and contend for it. Let's pray. Father, um, perhaps not today a real boost me up make me feel good message because we are called to do something that is so unpopular in our society today to test for the faith in those who teach and in those who are taught help us help us to do it in the right spirit that is the Holy Spirit of your son help us to be bold as we need to be bold and humble as we need to be humble. Help us to hold fast the truth with a closed hand, but with an open hand and open arms, speak in love. I pray, my Father, that we would not compromise. And I pray that nobody in this room would be conned. I pray, Father, that we would have the right faith in the right Jesus as he is revealed to us in the writings of his apostles preserved in your word. Please grant us that faith. Help us to know what we believe and why we believe it and to be faithful with it. In Jesus' name, amen.